0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good to be with everybody tonight. So tonight, uh, we'll begin to reflect on the habits of ill will. You know, we often talk about aversion, but we're, as a hindrance, we're really talking about when aversion um, builds into this response of hostility or ill will, right? And I think the word that's used actually has connotations of striking out, whether we're going to hit ourselves or hit somebody else because of the frustration, because there's aversion that's not necessarily unskillful, right? You know, when it's too hot and we turn away from the heat, that doesn't necessarily need to involve ill will. And one of the things we'll find, you know, as we just investigate places where there's some aversion, and then that curiosity, is there ill will, is there hostility here? The One example that some of you have heard me give from the tradition is somebody rowing a boat in the middle of the night on a big river, like the Ganges River, and uh, rowing, rowing and ram into another boat. And they got a lantern and they're you know, lighting the lantern or grabbing the lantern to find out who is the idiot you know, that wasn't watching out. And they're cursing and screaming and by the time they actually look, they see that there's nobody in the other boat. It's just been floating on the river. And that's the thing about ill will or anger. It needs a target. We need somebody to hate, somebody who's responsible. It could be ourselves, of course. And that, that helps us, because when our mind is, you know, the image the Buddha uses for ill will, like you, I think uh, Shelley and I mentioned the last few weeks, with desire, it's, uh, you know, it's like being in debt, the kind of mind state. And the Buddha likens ill will to being sick. It's like a sickness. And part of the expression of that sickness is we can't take our attention away from the object of our anger. We keep looking at the thing that we think is causing our discomfort, whatever it is. It could be ourselves, it could be our boss, it could be our partner, it could be somebody who's making noise at night. We keep bringing them to mind. And there's that vortex, you know, we bring the the thing or the person to mind who we think is the cause of our anger. And when we bring that to mind, it activates the anger. And then the activation of anger wants, makes us want to think of that person again. And thinking of that person again is the cause for the wave of anger. And then that makes us, now where is all that happening? In the mind. We think, no, 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 that person, but that's an idea in the mind. That sound, that sound is in my mind being known in my mind. It's like when somebody says to us, you know, you make me so angry. We don't realize how disempowering that is to us when we say that to somebody. You make me so angry. It's like, I can't help but be angry given what you've done or given what the world has done or given what the weather has done. We're this, we imagine we're this innocent victim, and somebody does something, and I have to be angry, but is that actually true, or is it a choice? And one of the things, uh, for all of the hindrances, and it's a really good, um, I guess, way to perceive whatever it is that's disturbing the heart, hindering the stability and balance of awareness to get interested, this is sort of the wisdom aspect, to get interested in what's feeding this quality of the heart, this attitude, and how does it starve? Or, you know, we could break it down even more, like what when I perceive, when I look at what, when I pay attention to what, does this arise? When I relate to, once it's arisen, when I relate to it in what way does it persist? When I relate to it in another way, does it diminish? When I relate to the present moment, in what way does it not arise? And we want to know that for greed and for hate and for dullness and for Restlessness and for doubt, because all of these obscurations—you know what clouds, what uh, oppresses our mind—they are natural processes. They arise, and and the kind of main ingredient feeding, determining these natural processes are just our habits of paying attention. Like, what are we paying attention to and how are we paying attention? And uh, one of the uh, expressions of real ignorance is we think that the way I'm paying attention is the only way in this moment to be paying attention. We don't realize that there are all kinds of choices happening given how I'm paying attention. That we could be paying attention to the present moment right now in a way that would be onward leading to a lot of metta, a lot of loving kindness getting established in the mind. Or I could be relating right now what I bring to mind and how I relate to what I bring to mind. Could be such that I'm really generating a lot of anger, feeding it, getting it stronger. And I mean, just ask yourself, isn't there a way that you could, in the sort of field of your present moment experience, isn't there something you could do with your mind to whip up a lot of anger? You know, it might be bringing to mind a particular politician and what they did, or it might be bringing to mind a relationship that's happening now or happened in the past and what someone didn't do, what someone did, and then really persisting certain notes, certain mental images, certain feeling times. It's like uh, making a particular stew. You just like a little of this and a lot of that. And if I, and all of a sudden, you know, huge victimhood or huge, strong, powerful, creative sense of wanting revenge, how important it is. Almost like sometimes we feel like I am personally responsible for making sure karma happens. That person deserves karma, you know, the karmic fruits of their unskillful behavior. And, God, darn it, I'm the one to deliver it. I better get on it, do it right. Because, you know, it would all fall apart. If the, I mean, that's how we feel. It's just amazing what we can rationalize when we pay attention in certain ways. I mean, if this seems a little far-fetched, just look what human beings have done in throughout human history. Where did that? Where did those actions come from? You know, they were justified. Humans have the capacity to justify incredible greed and incredible hate. And the Buddha says, you know, the point isn't to hate our habits of hatred, and nor is it gonna be helpful to ignore our habits of hatred or ill will. The practice, of course, is to get interested. And to see them as teachers. Some of you might remember, you know, people of my generation and even a little older, a lot of us read Carlos Castaneda's books back in the day, when they came out in the 70s and 80s, I guess. And uh, his teacher, is the, according to the books, Carl, uh, Carlos's teacher, Don Juan uh, Shaman from Mexico. Uh, had this sort of teaching of petty tyrants. Some of you might remember that, right? Uh, and I think where one of the places, at least in one of the books, where it comes up, Carlos is complaining about some difficult person in his life. I think it was a boss who was just really a jerk, an oppressive, taking advantage of, something like that. And uh forget exactly the details. But something like Carlos was going to leave the job because... The boss was so, you know, outrageously oppressive and mean. And uh, Don Juan is saying, what? You don't realize what you've got. You know, you've got this petty tyrant. And he goes on to talk about, like, these teachers. These are, like, essential teachers. The things that irritate us. Might be mosquitoes or we've got some mice coming into our house that I can't kind of figure out how they're getting in, you know, and it's these different places where we feel threatened or exposed or humiliated or betrayed. And of course, when you hear this, you might want to go immediately to the most overwhelming difficulty that's evoking a lot of hate or fear or anger. But it might be better just to imagine a more middling place of anger in your life, and just reform it as a teacher, literally. I mean, actually, like, I can actually sense some gratitude. You have something to teach me, because I can visualize, I can sense how powerful it would be for me to no longer be afraid, to no longer throw you out of my heart. I still may need to keep my distance, so it's not saying that, you know, we're going to be buds and I'm going to be undefended when I'm around you, I still may need to, you know, do some really strong interventions in terms of what I say to you or whether I'm around you or whether I call the police or whatever, right? Loving someone doesn't tell us whether we call the police or not, right? It's really just, whether the heart is being, whether the heart is justifying ill-will and hate and fear, or whether the heart can take care of ourselves without the hate, ill-will and fear, do what the appropriate response might be. Like that famous teaching from Shantideva, some of you know, because the Dalai Lama repeats it so often, um, a lot of people think that the Dalai Lama said it, but he's quoting Chantideva, this ninth century Buddhist monk from India. Um, and he wrote this treatise called uh, The Way of the Bodhisattva. And in the later Buddhist traditions, this ideal of the Bodhisattva kind of transformed from the original meaning. Right? The original meaning is quite simple. It's somebody on the way to being a Buddha. So the Buddha before his deep insight was a Bodhisattva. And in Pali, it's Bodhisatta. And, um, but in the later traditions, they kind of made it into this really beautiful ideal of compassionate action. Somebody vowing to continue showing up until all beings are free. It's just a part of a, a more general movement of this intention, this motivation behind the practice, practicing for the benefit of all beings. So um, Shantideva has this really simple teaching, and this is a rough paraphrase, but um, when we're facing difficulty that would otherwise trigger aversion or hatred, ill will, or fear, resentment, irritation, you know, all the different expressions of ill will, if there's something you can do in this difficult circumstance, well then of course do it. And if there's nothing that you can do, right, in this moment, well then there's nothing you can do in this moment. But in either case, whether the situation is such that there's something you can do that might help to take care of yourself, or in this situation, as far as you understand there's nothing you can do why get tight why be aversive and that's really part of the study this week when we're highlighting aversion i mean the first step is really to be to be able to um distinguish between aversion and the object so it might be helpful for all of us just to bring to mind something that for you triggers aversion and ill will. And, you know, it might be a particular relationship, it might be a particular political situation where you have this ill will toward those people with power doing things that they're doing, maybe to protect themselves. At the cost of harming others or something like that. And you feel this self-righteous anger. How dare they? Where are those karma gods delivering the just desserts to the, you know, mean-spirited people out there? That's what we want, right? I wouldn't cause them harm because it's God's job, you know. You know, that's why you have those lightning bolts. You're supposed to smoke people who act in despicable ways. I mean, that's what we want. And we imagine it. Right? I mean, think about So let's just do that now, whoever that is. A lover that betrayed you, a politician that's, you know, in your sense, betraying people who don't have power or whatever. And what we want to do is, whatever the memory or the mental image of the target of our anger is, to distinguish that image or that experience from the actual ill will. Kind of see that there are two things. There's the trigger, the idea, the mental image, the memory that triggers, and then the thing that it triggers, which is the emotion of ill will. Because you know, when we get a little momentum of anger, it's like, have you caught yourself, the mind is actually looking for other targets, other things that make me angry, potholes, people who don't pick up their dog poop, you know and this and that and because of that dance I described earlier where there's some memory, some mental image, some idea triggering another image the Buddha uses, you know he calls anger murderously sweet, there's something very juicy and seductive it's enlivening and uh, one image that's used is boiling water, right? in the same way that it's obscuring or illness, like just uh, caught in my, you know, when you have one of those terrible head colds, you know, and you're just leaking, and the head is under pressure, and you're just consumed. You can't escape. And to really see the, the, take the attention, so this is a strategic move where if we can, we take the attention off of the idea, the mental image, the trigger, and we bring the attention to the experience of anger, ill will itself. And what do we notice when we bring the attention to the ill will itself? Sylvia Worsting summed this up perfectly. She said, ill will hurts. (laughs) It does. And that's so grounding. Oh, being angry really hurts. Now, I know we kind of already know that intellectually, But when we're in that vortex, you know, where we're triggering, by what we pay attention to, we're triggering the anger, and then the feeling of the anger triggers us to want to find the trigger, which triggers more anger, right, and there's that feedback loop, and we're kind of getting high in a weird, oppressive way off of the energy of the anger, we're feeling sort of definitively like me who's angry. There's there's very few senses of self that have more solidity than like self-righteous anger or being really oppressed. You know, that quality of one's self-identity, that stickiness of identity when we're angry is, it's like, we might be really suffering, it may be really painful, but we feel solid. And on a, on a deeper, more subtle level, that's important to this natural and personal system of delusion. It's become addicted to the sense of solidity itself, regardless of the cost or the pain. So one way, and I'll talk about a couple ways before we're done, and I'll save some time for questions, too, tonight. Um, but when we have enough stability, we're not completely overwhelmed, we do that process that I've been talking about where we notice that we're suffering, that we're angry, we're caught in the vortex, the spinning of anger, of ill will, revenge fantasy, Remember, fear is an expression of ill-will, right? I mean, a certain kind of fear, obsessive fear. And uh, and so then we do this dharma move where we specifically ask the heart, don't pay attention to the triggers because what's really important is you're angry. That's actually what's predominant right now. So let's be real. Let's acknowledge, oh... Anger's like this. will will's like this. Hating is like this. So we're going, we're sort of dropping right into the attitude itself, not the cause for the attitude. Oh. And then that, of course, gets us closer to, oh, it hurts. There's anger, and then there's the unpleasantness, the oppressiveness of the anger can i be with that this is relevant that it hurts and of course we can only do that with some wisdom and kindness it's a like it's an act of compassion it's only in a way the very definition of compassion is that awareness that can meet suffering so when we realize that ill will hurts that's suffering right And then I'm going to meet that pain of the ill will with that compassionate, that wise and compassionate presence. And the key about that is then I'm no longer feeding the aversion. Because for aversion, that aversive pattern to be fed, we need to engage that feedback loop that I was talking about. We need the target. And in that example I gave where the person in the boat takes their lantern and looks at the other rowboat and sees that it's just floating there, right? I mean, the person, you know, if their mind is nimble enough, they can start to hate the person who didn't tie that boat down carefully enough or something like that. But in the the first moment of seeing that the person that they've been cursing at doesn't exist, there's kind of this implosion. And it's, it's sort of, uh, if you've had other things happen to you where you they didn't really lend themselves to blaming anybody, even if it's a bad thing. I forget who it was that was telling me this story. It might have been Michelle McDonald, who is an IMS teacher, and she's been living on Hawaii and Oahu for a long time. And I think she had just pulled off one of these beaches, and she was talking to, uh, I guess, a student of her, somebody she knew, and he had put a surfboard on top of his car, but hadn't yet tied it down. And they were just talking, you on know, in the parking lot. And then some wind just sort of swept in, lifted the surfboard off of his car, and it went crashing and did some damage to another car, you know, that was 15 feet away, or something like that. Just some strange gust of wind, you know. And uh, it's like nobody's fault. (laughs) But but just the kind of, it's interesting when something like that happens, where you really want to get angry, but you, you catch your mind kind of, in need of a scenario, a story, that provides the target that justifies the anger. Because otherwise, it's just a matter of two people having a conversation. Well, anybody have insurance that could cover this? You know, like, what are we going to do about this? I'd like to hate you, but it's really hard to blame you for this. You didn't really do anything wrong or even stupid. Right? You were just paused for a moment and tying down your surfboard and something weird happened, or whatever it might be. And of course, that's always the case. Like even when we have that idea of uh, somebody with a lot of power doing really bad stuff with the power that they have that harms a lot of other people, even that really unskillful action, there are causes and conditions that make that the way that it is, that it can't be other than the way that it is. These greedy people, these oppressive people, these naughty people, given all of the causes and conditions, you know, as I think one writer said, if we knew the secret history of our enemies, would they be our enemies? If we knew all of the causes and conditions behind somebody's action, you know, the parent that didn't love them, or the this or the that, whatever it was. It's not somehow taking responsibility away from people, but just understanding that in a very real way, we're just expressing causes and conditions. And the more we know that, our heart breaks open. And the last thing we want to do is feed the beast, you know, Feed more ill will, more hostility, more ignorance. So that's one thing. I know Sido Tejaniya, you know, he just says, okay, there's ill will, and then separating the object or the what we imagine is the cause from the actual experience of ill will, oh, this is ill will, it hurts, can I be with the feeling of it, the feeling tone, the unpleasantness of it? When I'm with the unpleasantness of the ill will, do I still need ill will? Because one of the things we start to discover the more we just get interested, you know, in any of the hindrances, but in this case ill will, is that The, you know, the whipped up mark when he's irritated and angry and self righteous or whatever the expression might be, it's actually a very inefficient, unhelpful way to avoid the unpleasantness that I'm experiencing. So when I find my way back to, oh, it's really unpleasant right now, then all of a sudden being angry doesn't have a purpose because I have the capacity to to feel whatever I'm feeling. Oh, this relationship is over and it really hurts. It really hurts like this. And in those moments when we can meet what it feels like and even bringing in some metta to stabilize, to bring in some confidence that I can actually be with this hurt, this unpleasantness, then all of the loops of revenge and betrayal and oh poor me or whatever, you know, the different expressions might be, they just aren't needed because we can be right with the feeling tone of it. And it, you know, either quickly or slowly, the whole latent tendency to get whipped up into the anger collapses, because it needs all those parts, like, and especially that part of, I can't be with this unpleasant feeling, so I'm going to act out, because it creates, in at least in this temporary kind of way, a sense of distance from the pain that is inevitable in life, the pain of disappointment and loss and stuff happening. You know, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, the eight worldly winds that the Buddha talks about. And, you know, one of the reasons I did... Uh, Forgiveness and the loving kindness reflection tonight during the guided meditation is just this uh, understanding that it really helps this possibility. Like uh, it's a protecting quality because when we've activated the attitude of metta, it's it's a generosity of the heart that can just as easily go toward ourself. Oh, you're getting triggered. You're getting, you're feeling betrayed. This is irritating for you. And I care about that. Life is hard. Anything can happen anytime and you're getting some real difficult experiences now. And I care about that, it's hard for you. And and I'm not going to abandon myself. And I forgive myself for all of these impulses to want to hit back or wanting to give up on life or whatever my aversive response might be. I forgive myself. Of course. Of course you're feeling that. Of course you want to hit back. Of course you want revenge. Of course you want something bad to happen to that person. Ill-will hurts, and you're feeling that. And the metta is like a balm. It's a protecting balm. And it's preventative, too. You know, the more generosity of the heart we have, just notice how things that would otherwise trigger ill-will, we just have compassion. You know, somebody cuts us off on the highway, and it's like, oh, you must be having a really bad day driving dangerously like that, you know. It can't be easy. I'm really happy I'm not you. Because I, I I, just have a sense that your heart hurts. And, and the last thing I do to myself is make myself hurt by getting angry at you. You know, we think we're being so nice to other people. But in the Buddhist tradition, you know, I don't know if the Buddha said it himself. I think he might have... But I think he used the image of, uh, could be uh, like a metal ball, and it might even be feces too. Like if you want to throw it, who's going to get dirty or burn first? You know? And that's the thing. We, We really get that down in our bones, how unhelpful aversion or ill will is. You know, when aversion gets combined with this egoic um, identified, we're identified with being the one who's been harmed. We can't avoid being harmed or hurt, insulted, because being alive means, you know, there's up and there's down, so that's going to happen, but we don't have to personalize the insults that come our way. And when we do, we take it as a teacher. Oh, look at that. That's how suffering gets constructed. And it's that construction's happening here in my heart, in my mind. Not as I imagine you did it to me. No, no. It's it's happening right here. And that's a real superpower when we see that. Like, oh, I don't have to take the bait. I don't have to construct that heavy that uh, heavy state of mind. So we have the deconstruction that I talked about. We have the preventative work of just getting familiar with the flavor of metta. And remember, initially we think of metta as this sort of glorious, friendly, wholesome state. But actually, technically, metta, loving kindness, is the absence of ill will. It's less about it being a something, like a particularly beautiful attitude of mind. It is a particularly beautiful attitude of mind. But its presence is about what's not there. There's not ill will active in the mind. So check now. Is there ill will? And we can, it's like develop radar for ill will, and we can really get a sense how keeping metta in mind, keeping that basic goodness, that basic friendliness in mind, and it's like rewiring so it becomes more and more the predominant. You know, it's true because when we think of our whatever number of friends we have, there are some people who have a stronger tendency, nature, to be friendly among your friends, and some of them have a more strong tendency to be aversive and have ill will and being curmudgeons or whatever, grumpy types, irritable ones. So we, and how do they become the way they are? Well, causes and conditions so we can consciously participate. What sort of seeds are we planting? How do we become, over time, somebody with a friendly, generous, loving heart? We notice friendliness. We keep it in mind, and we have confidence that there's always that capacity for goodness and friendliness, always. And then even when it's not the dominant quality, maybe irritation right now is the dominant, but I don't feed the irritation by bringing my attention to what's irritating. I notice something maybe initially quieter, like I care about how the irritation hurts. I mean, I really care. Not like I should care, but I actually care. Oh, this is hard for me right now that this traffic is really pushing my buttons. So, I don't need a different moment. Whatever the moment is, there's a way and how we pay attention and what we pay attention to. We we need this initial confidence. There's always a way to be planting seeds for metta, and there always are ways to be planting seeds for ill-will. And it's a choice. And we may not want that responsibility, but then we're just left to have it energy. But when we take that responsibility, actually we, we start to feel empowered. Okay, so if actually the choice exists right now, how can I be showing up right now in my life so that I'm, because of how I'm paying attention here to what's going on now, how I'm paying attention to what I'm paying attention, how can I be growing the habit of loving kindness and shrinking and starving the habits of ill will? And how about like when we read the news, are we feeding ill will? Or when we're doing this, talking to this friend, like we might have a particular friendship where we do a lot of gossiping and we're just You know, we just now, in hindsight or upon reflection, we realize, oh, I'm mostly planting seeds of ill will when I'm hanging out with that person. I either need to reform that relationship, have a talk with that friend, or I have to stop hanging out with that person. And maybe I'll hang out with this other person. Because we water wholesome seeds, and that's in a way, in a Buddhist sense at least, the definition of a good friend. Is that person is interesting interested in watering, like relating together in a way where we're watering each other's wholesome seeds and we're not watering seeds of ill will and greed and doubt and you know how it is, like someone's complaining about some breakup and we could just like get into trash talking this person that they broke up with, you know? And it's it, we can tell ourselves we're supporting our friend, but we just have to look at our own heart. Like, what are we setting emotion? motion? We just need enough reflectiveness, enough interest, and we'll know, like, what sort of seeds are getting reinforced and strengthened. What am I feeding? What am I starving? So the basic, like what the Buddha says in the text, so got recorded in the text, you know, What feeds ill will are those thoughts, images, experiences that trigger ill will. When I bring this to mind, ill will grows. So we can directly see. Or when I bring this other thing to mind, so like when I'm noticing the irritant, I get irritable. But Stop noticing the irritant. You know, it's like we got a little sliver or a little hangnail or whatever. And we just it starts to bug us. It's like I can't wait. Till I get home and I get a nail clipper and get. It can be like this huge aversive thing going on in our mind. But it's because the mind has been obsessively paying attention to this. There's nine billion other things to pay attention to in the moment, but we pay attention to one little thing. You know, one little ouch, or piece of food in our teeth, or, you know, or somebody who's doing something in the room that we think is stupid, or wore something that we think is stupid, you know, but we can't help ourselves. And even when we're not looking at them, we know that they're there, and they wore that. I can't believe they wore a t-shirt that says that, you know. So it's like, i got to talk to Mark about that. That shouldn't be allowed. People get weird in these ways. That these on um, retreats, you know, because mind the mind gets concentrated. People can get in these aversive vortexes where they really. There's one story that gets told um, at a retreat center from a retreat center that was long ago um, near Palm Springs by Joshua Tree National Monument in Southern California, and it evidently I haven't been down there, but um, evidently a lot of the planes flying into LAX, the airport at Los Angeles, uh, go over there. And so, you know, nine day retreat, someone just starts getting irritated by the jets flying overhead. And it's just, you know. And finally, you know, this is like the height of delusion. And this is what aversion does, your will does. It's like, writes a note to the teachers. Somebody's got to call Los Angeles International Airport. And, t- and But they were totally serious. It's like, you know, this is not okay. Yeah. And that, that kind of delusion, you know, because we live in our constructed realities. And uh, it's, we see this with uh, ill will, like how we can really turn somebody into a monster and they're just another suffering human being like the rest of us but we turn them into this incredible monster. And then, then we can really justify terrible actions against them because we've made them into uh, you know, some subhuman. So why don't I leave it here? We have 10 minutes. See if uh, um, are there are any questions. In the room or online, people online, you can raise your digital hand. Uh, If you don't know how to do that, it's under Reactions there at the bottom. If you click that, one of the choices will be Raise Hand. And otherwise, people in the room, you can just let me know. I'll hand you the mic. You can sit on the bench and say something. Yeah, your own learnings about aversion or just how to work with aversion or anything that was confusing in the talk. People online can also, if it's short, write something in the chat if you want. What comes to mind? Next week we'll have small groups. And our job this week, and I put some articles in the email that I sent out earlier this afternoon for some background study. But the idea is that you take the week and you really study both in your formal sitting time and all day long, planting seeds for aversion and ill will, getting to know, dropping in, feeling tone, sensing the immunity when the mind is, the heart is friendly, and there's some actual loving kindness. Yeah, please. Do you mind, why don't you come up here so people online can hear you? I think
1: a lot of times anger is really, it,
0: there's a cause behind it.
1: There it, it can be a, a real legitimate cause behind it. And it's, it's I think that, Anger kind of, it becomes this kind of energy that may allow you to do something about something that is legitimately wrong. I mean, I think sometimes people get angry over things that are not legitimate, but sometimes people are angry about something that's legitimately wrong, and that anger kind of drives them to maybe do something about it. And I know that it's better to do something about things without the anger but I hope that people still do something when something is legitimately wrong. How do you kind of separate out those things? Yes, you want to suppress the bad, but keep that good kernel and say, I want to change something that's legitimately wrong and not forget
0: that. Yeah. A really important comment. And, uh, and of course, uh, the real answer is we're going to, we're gonna learn by observing our own actions and our own minds. And remember, when we use a word like ill will or hostility or anger, anger anger's a little bit more neutrally used in English than hostility and ill will. Um, So it might be better for us just in our own mind to use ill will and hostility, resentment, because whether you call it anger or say something like, my heart was moved to act. I couldn't, I could not not act. I had to say something, I had to do something. But that movement, I wouldn't, like we don't have to call that anger, we could call that fierce compassion, right? I mean, compassionate action isn't passive. And uh, so whatever it is, when it the heart, it's more about like, I'm hurting, like this is one of the ways we know ill will is ill will. It's like we want the others to hurt. But when some injustice is happening and action is needed, we don't want someone to hurt, we want the harm to stop. We want the um, injustice to be rectified, something broken to be fixed. But if we want that person to suffer, that's ill will. If we want that person to get off the street so they don't cause any more harm, and we do whatever we can to keep that person from causing harm, that might be compassionate action. But if that's not enough, and we want that person to hurt, that might be ill will. And each of us have to figure this out for ourselves. We have to know the difference between that movement in our heart that allows us to do brave, courageous actions, to stick our neck out, because what we're seeing is not okay. And I I can't stand for this. I have to do something. I feel moved because I sense the harm that's being done and it's breaking my heart open and the energy of that break is leading me into action. And I think that's why it's such an important point not to presume, you know, to equate um, non-ill will with passivity or just letting people walk all over us. Yeah, thanks for that. Colleen, did you want to go next? You can go ahead and unmute yourself.
1: Hi, thank you. My name is Colleen. Um, Mark, you mentioned in the talk that sometimes fear is an expression of ill will. Can you talk a little bit about that, please?
0: Yeah, because sometimes when we're afraid, you know, we turn... uh, it's, it's like uh, that closing in on ourselves or hiding or shrinking. And uh, it's oppressive, right? When we're, it's harmful to ourselves. And, uh, and it's interesting, you know, when we, we access real meta. We really keep that in mind, real compassion. It's amazing how the actual effect on the body, the heart and mind is a kind of undefendedness and receptivity. It's really the opposite of that fear. So I mean we could this would be a really important place to study, and it might come up in the small groups, Colleen. Like where we look at places where we fear. Fear is a little bit like anger in terms of how we use it in English, because like I forgot your name was Wayne. Yeah, we're saying you know anger. Sometimes we use it as a skillful quality. So um, and same with fear. Fear can be a very natural, useful quality, right? It's appropriate to be averse, to be afraid maybe even angry if we understand what we mean by that in terms of a strong response. But the fear that's ill will is when the mind is identified with the danger, with the sense of being someone in danger and feels put upon and uh, diminished by that whatever, you know, the the problem might be. And it's a kind of uh, self-harm. You know, we can imagine something like death just because it's, you know, it's the big thing. And uh, having an appropriate respect for like how little we understand what death is and the appropriateness, whether you call that fear or whatever word you might want to use to talk about that proximity to the mystery and the quivering of the body and the mind in the face of that uncertainty, like what is death and how often there's pain in that transition and the body's falling apart. But there can be, uh, you know, sort of like a non, like, i not condemning life because there's death. Or not drawing any conclusion whatsoever, just like normalizing it. Yeah, there's this mystery, you know, that often involves physical pain that leaves me feeling this way, you know, and then you describe how you feel when you think about your death and that transition. And all that that might imply, which we don't know, because there's so many different ways that it unfolds. But not imagining that it's evil or bad. But certainly, you know, at least in in some ways, in our culture, death is bad, so bad that we you know we deny it and we bury it and we don't talk about it so much. Isn't it interesting, the people we love, when you think about the people we really love, and even people who are quite old who we love, how just we don't have the vocabulary or the permission to have honest conversations about death. I mean, it's better maybe now than it was, but it's sort of like a taboo. Sorry, Mary, didn't get to your comment or question. Hopefully you can maybe write me an email and and uh, I'll pass it on, or you send it to Shelley. Shelley's talking next week. and Shelley will introduce uh, dullness. And remember dullness isn't just sleepiness. It's just when the like a heavy wet blanket on the mind, and restlessness, too much, too little energy. And then in order to be a hindrance, it's not just too little or too much energy. It's identified as being the person with too little or too much, right? And that's when these dullness and restlessness become oppressive. I'll come back in two weeks to talk about doubt, and then Shelley will come and do the last week and talk about the other defilements, all the other like conceit and uh, fixed views, helplessness, impatience. So the different expressions of these uh, qualities of mind that hinder stability and wisdom and kindness, too, for that matter. Good. So wishing you all good conversations next week in the small groups. Really nice to be here with everyone. Hope to see you in two weeks, if not sooner. Thanks, everyone.